0: You're listening to Gospel-Centered Rest, a podcast by Grace Bible Church in Cambridge, Ontario, dealing with topics of life and theology, and how Christ's promise of rest for the weary and heavy laden gives us strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Welcome back to Gospel-Centered Rest. Uh, We have a very special episode today. Uh, Today I'm joined with Pastor Byron Burton who happens to be an associate pastor here as well at Grace Bible Church. And Byron, how are you doing? Hey, doing well, taking one day at a time. One day at a time, good answer. Well, Byron, uh, this past Sunday, you started us off in a new series going through the book of John, and, and in particular, looking at some of the signs of Christ. And we're going to be doing this series over the next few weeks. And so today's podcast, we just want to take a few moments and talk about the passage that you preached on this past Sunday. Now, before we read the passage, did you want to give us any, um, any background, uh, any comments uh, as to what this passage is about, uh, where it is in the book of John, and then we'll just take it from there.
1: It's near the beginning, but not first thing. So John's put out an intro, as it were, and then he's diving into Jesus' ministry. And this sets the tone for the signs mm-hmm. that are coming and how he makes that such a, a part of the whole book.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. And the passage we are talking about is John chapter 2, uh, talking about Christ turning the water to wine. So why don't I read it, Byron, and then I have a few questions here that I'd like to ask you to kind of pick your brain about some of the things that you had discussed on Sunday that maybe we can focus in on a little bit over the next few minutes, develop a little further, and be encouraged uh, by these words. So John chapter 2, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not come yet. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them with, to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone starts out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior... But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. So, Byron, very interesting passage uh, and very substantial passage that we have here at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Now, Just to kind of back it up just for a moment, why are these signs so important? Why would John spend the time he does focusing on these signs of Christ? Why are these important to us? What do you think?
1: I think it's a good question. John's the last one to write, as it were. Matthew, Mm -hmm. Mark, and Luke already on the scene. People have you could say, a good idea of detail, and yet John's bringing something else across. And I think part of it is just recognizing time has gone by. Maybe other questions have come up. Maybe the other debates are happening in the culture, in the, in the newly forming church. John takes a step back, and he's not writing for the church nearly so much, I think, as for people who are asking mm. about Jesus, so mm. this is this is a book intended for seekers and searchers who are saying, "Okay, so who is this Jesus? Really, you know, they, they've heard a lot of these stories." Mm. So he doesn't go the same route. He says, "I've chosen these signs." He, he goes back through his memory. He's mm. seen all sorts of stuff, but he's picking and choosing for particular reasons. And so he brings these signs. Many would say there's seven. Some would debate the number. But he's chosen them and each one. It's like he's building his case, mm. sign by sign, so that people will end up being overwhelmed with this conviction that, wow, Jesus isn't just the healer we heard about. He's not just the teacher. Mm. He's the Son of God.
0: Do you think that's why so many people encourage um, those who maybe don't know too much about Jesus or they want to learn more about who Christ is to read the book of John first or for a new believer to read the book of John?
1: It certainly makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Because yeah. it just presents Jesus straightforward. Not that the others don't, mm-hmm. but he prevent, presents it in that deliberate way, mm-hmm. saying, who is this guy?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on Sunday... Byron, you had mentioned the significance of wine throughout redemptive history. Could you explain this a little further? And why do you think Jesus begins his ministry this way? Like wouldn't it have been better for him to do a much bigger kind of grand miracle than um, than what some have said is is a party trick? And we know that it's not a party trick or that uh, and we know that this is a serious thing that uh, takes place, and pretty miraculous thing that takes place. But why would Christ choose wine, uh, water to wine, to be the first um, of his of his signs, of his miracles?
1: You know, I'd almost want to say that it wasn't planned,
0: hmm.
1: and I don't want that to seem minimizing we know jesus was able to understand and know people's thoughts Mm -hmm. but here he is he's been invited to a wedding i don't get the impression and john doesn't give the impression that this has all been set up to orchestrate a grand entrance Rather, it's almost the opposite. He's there. He's going on in life. Yes, he started calling disciples. So he has entered into his public ministry, but it's not something that is well-known. It's just Mm. starting. And so he starts small. And that's one of the things the Gospels talk about is Mm. the growing of the kingdom. Well, here we are right at the ground zero. And so this sign isn't for the crowd. It isn't for all the people. It isn't for the nation. It doesn't grab a lot of attention. It's for the disciples. And somebody pointed out at this point, we're not even sure if he has 12 yet. Right. We know eventually there'll be 12. But only a few have been named. Hmm. But it's for the disciples in particular. And we see their response at the end.
0: Yeah. Uh, at the end of the passage, it says that as he he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So... Most definitely, there's an emphasis there that, that he's using this sign to show uh, his faithfulness to his disciples and his power to his disciples. Now, how does this passage encourage the believer, somebody who has repented of their sin, has a relationship with Christ, and is reading this, this passage? How do you think this, this encourages the uh, average believer in the church today?
1: I suggest it encourages the believer along the same lines as it encouraged the disciples. It moved hmm. them to believe. It, it moved them based on who this individual was, which is coming out of what he has done, to come to a conclusion that made a difference. So we're believers today. We're 2,000 years later. Yes. But people are still coming to that point. Hmm. And once we're already a believer, it's not like, oh, well, we're done with that. We move right on and we never have any questions. Hmm. Forget that. We have doubts. We we struggle. We think, you know, are we going up the wrong path here? Ironically, the book of Hebrews does the exact same thing Hmm. and writes to the believers saying, don't forget what you came to know. Don't get distracted by what's going on around you and what people are saying. So in the same sense for us today, maybe you've been a believer for 25 years and you're Mm. in a situation where you think, you know, is this worthwhile? Mm. Am I wrong? Have I made a colossal life mistake here? (laughs) Well, we read this and we think, no, there is no mistake this is the one that I have trusted. Mm. This is the one that I have believed in. So as the believer reads this sign and the other signs that come, their faith is reinforced in Jesus, that he's the only one worth their belief and their faith and their trust. So it encourages us in that way as we just see, look at this man Mm. who is more than a man. Look at How he acts. Look look at what he does. Look at who he is in in his relationships. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned earlier, that idea of wine in the Old Testament, how John takes that and the symbolism of the Old Testament, where God would bless a Mm. fruitful land, was a land that had great crops, including the vineyard and a Mm. thriving vineyard. Like, think of when they went into the promised land. Right. When they explored it, what did they come out with? A colossal cluster of grapes. (laughs) Well, Mm -hmm. that was just to show how fruitful this land was. Well, they didn't primarily make raisins, so they probably made some. Mm -hmm. But the wine was that symbol of a fruitful, productive land. And God promised that that's what the land would be if they followed him. And it's actually one of the curses that if they disobey and don't follow him, that their vines would wither, that there would be no wine, that etc. You know, so that mm. whole connotation there of God's blessing. And he says, after they've been exiled, and they think, oh, this is the end. We're done. We're finished. Did, mm. I thought God was going to. He says, no, I will bring you back and the land will flourish. And he uses this incredible analogy in the book of Amos where he says the guy who goes out to plow is going to be overtaken by the reaper. And what? What are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Basically saying the crop will be so huge you won't be able to get it in before you have to start planting again. And then he talks the same about the wine. And he says, he it's like he flips it around. And the idea is the... Grapes are going to grow so fast you wouldn't have even got to plant the vines before you're having to harvest them. You know, this analogy of incredible fruitfulness and abundance. And then Jesus does this miracle. Yeah. Taking it all and making the wine out of water. And everyone has what they want, and it's incredible. You know, it's not second grade Mm -hmm. in any way. It's top-notch. And that whole symbolism yeah. is what those disciples really pick up on because at just the chapter right before it yeah one of the last things that happens is this introduction between andrew and nathaniel mm-hmm. they seem to have been friends who have been searching waiting talking about the coming messiah and andrew goes to find him and say hey i found him you know mm-hmm. and nathaniel say I mean, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Now he's from Galilee as well. You know, he's not exactly from the big, the big metropolis. But he's questioning it, and he says, "Well, come and see." And he's one of the ones that here at the wedding who sees what's going on. They've been looking for the Messiah, and he says, "Wow, he's convinced. He believes."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you think about it, the theme of wine. Kind of continues throughout Christ's ministry, and he opens his ministry up, turning um, w- water to wine, and the at the end of his life, at the end of his his earthly ministry, uh, what does he do? He has a meal with his with his disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper, and he he uses wine as a as a symbol and a representation of his of his own life giving blood. Um so yeah, so when you really stop and, and you think about it, this had much larger significance than just uh like we said earlier, than just a simple party trick. Yeah. Um this was really speaking to redemption and that Christ had come to offer that redemption for us, that newness of life uh for us. So very, very good point to make in this passage. Now is there is there anything further from this passage Byron that you think you didn't maybe have time to discuss on Sunday that you would say you know that That'd be a really good point for us to just take a moment and cover
1: There was a couple of things that we didn't have time to cover Mm -hmm. One of them is that the signs aren't the only structure of John's gospel Mm -hmm. So we have again seven would some would argue for seven sayings the, the famous ones, the I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Right. I am, you, you know, these sorts of, and these are aligned with the signs. Some would say one-to-one. Others would say, well, it's not quite that neat and tidy. But they're mm-hmm. together, bolstering each other, where John gives us these sayings, these mm, talks, discourses of Jesus that we know we don't find anywhere else. And yet right. Jesus just expands it out. So as people read through John, they see these signs, and then they can listen to Jesus talking and how his teaching bolsters, fills out, expresses the signs, again, just pointing to himself and who he is. So that's one of the things that is there alongside it. The other thing is John constantly brings us back to how are we going to respond. Hmm. So the first sign does that, and John explains at the end, his purpose is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. And reading through John, you start to see how often he's pointing it out. You know, he says, the disciples believed. And then he talks mm. about Nicodemus and what he came to believe. And then you have him working with the Samaritan woman in chapter four, and she comes to believe and goes and tells other people, hey, could this be? And they come, and guess what? They believe in Jesus. And mm. then you have a healing at the pool, and you're working through, and John is relentless. He just keeps coming back, and this person believed. and yeah. this... Now, it's not everybody, mm. and that's so real that not everybody will believe, and we can't expect that but he points out and rejoices and uses them as examples for those who are reading, including us, mm-hmm. to say, you're not alone. Look at all these other people also coming to this conclusion of who is Jesus? He's a son of God, and I can believe in him and have life in his name.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you say, Byron, maybe maybe as a, as a word of closing, Um, what would you say to the Christian that is maybe struggling with doubt right now? Um, How would you encourage them or what would your your advice be to them in this season of doubt, whatever they may be facing?
1: I guess the first thing that comes to mind is to be honest. Hmm. Don't pretend. God knows how we're feeling. He knows what we're struggling with. And I think being honest with ourselves is a good place to start. Hmm. So if we're at a spot and we are doubting, then we can take that to God and say, you know what, you're not really what I'm expecting here. What's going on? What are you doing? And that's what we see in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. So we can Mm -hmm. be encouraged we're not alone. That can help us connect with other people. Because sometimes we think, oh, I can't say that. Right. Everybody will think I'm, I'm out to lunch. No, you're not. You're normal. So if you're questioning or doubting or struggling, it's a blessing to have somebody else. And they can say, oh, I've been there too. Mm-hmm. And this helped me. You know, and that mm-hmm. interaction with other people can be so dynamic. When I've gone through, I think, one particular occasion when we were really struggling And I read a verse in Job, it's early on, after the friends have come, they've sat there with them, good friends, and then they end up saying more than they really need to and not so good. Mm. But one of the comments that Job makes is a man, I may not be getting this right in quoting it, a man should have basically the friendship of those close to him. Hmm. even if he doubts the Almighty. So he basically says, you know, when you're in the midst of struggling and questioning life and whether God cares and whether God exists, one of the precious gifts that are there are your friends. Hmm. True friends will stick with you through that. So when we're in the midst of that, Hmm. being honest, connecting with other people, just knowing that they care can make a world of difference
0: mm, that's so that's so good so encouraging and how encouraging it is to look at a passage like this uh, that we've looked at here this afternoon and that you preached through on sunday and be encouraged even in those seasons of doubt because i find that even within the church it's almost like we don't leave room for people to be able to express the fact that they may be doubting they may be struggling with something so i think just being honest, like, like you said, being honest with ourselves and allowing, um, allowing room and a safe space for that honesty within the church and with, with one another, I, I think is so good. So thank you. Thank you, Byron, for this time and thanks for sharing with us.
1: Glad to.